Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Listener, have you ever been violently ambivalent about a work? So overwhelmed by your lack of ability to come up with a sensible reading that you doubt your own ability to even take a side? Well, we have. So here's Faust Part 1, Part 2. Um, maybe put the kids to bed for this one. We get a little rowdy and very raunchy. But it's not us, we swear. It's Goethe making us contemplate the metaphysics of blueballing. In any case, if you have listeners under 18 or are listening to this in the office, maybe just put the headphones on. And if Goethe gets you interested in things Germanic beyond just the literary, check out what Travis and Pete get up to at podcastnik.com. Podcastnik puts out the history of Germany, a podcast about, well, the history of Germany. They also produce the YouTube show Past Access and the podcast The Secret Cabinet, a personal favorite of mine about some of the weirder aspects of history. You can find them at podcastnik.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-N-I-K.com. If you're online, check us out at thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook at The Cannonball Podcast and on Twitter at Cannonball Pod. The Cannonball is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Check out some of the other shows on the network at agorapodcastnetwork.com. And one last note, if you're in the New York area and need reading and writing tutoring or are interested in online tutoring, let us know. Claude, that's me, has a tutoring business on the side and two kids, so I'm always looking for a few more clients. If you need some help, send an email to claudemoinc at gmail.com. That's C-L-A-U-D-E-M-O-I-N-C at gmail.com. We can also pr- produce literary lectures on demand. I'm not entirely certain what situations would call for that, but for some quality literary infotainment, hit us up. Welcome to the Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all the works in the Western canon. Hey, Daniel, um, mm-hmm. you uh, you ever have to go out to a cave in the middle of nowhere in the German mountains just to wank it because society won't let you fuck? <laughs> you know, it's one of the most relatable scenes in all of literature. 
and I'm happy that we get to share it with our audience today. Because um, uh, it's, it's one of those sort of universal, one of those universal touch points, you know. Like we've all who 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 among us hasn't gotten just so gosh darn Randy that they had to run away to uh, some limestone uh, cave in Baden Baden and just crank a few out. Yeah, just you know? I mean, it it doesn't matter if there's a woman perfectly available. You know, it's just like society, man, and so you have Look. to run out to the woods to find some pornography that somebody has hidden <laughs> creepily out there. Find find some erotic woodcuts from 1670 uh, oh, out boy. there out there in the woods. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, wh- I mean, who who among us hasn't been? rendered just tragically horny by their own Sturm and Drang in their hearts. <laughs> okay. This, in case you can't tell, this is the episode where maybe you want to put the kids to bed. Um, no, this is, this is kind of the weirdness of it. But the, the issue is that this stuff, I mean, I, I'm being extremely vulgar just because it's been a long day, but um, th- this is kind of the, the, the material of the second p- part of Faust part one, that this is yeah. kind of like, it's, it's mostly symbolically rendered. Although there are these moments where Mephistopheles has no patience for the symbolically rendered and wants to be as blunt as possible. And making, making, making the literal jerk off motion. No, I mean, that, that's what happens when they go to Faust's wank cave. And maybe yeah. I'm capitulating to the Mephistophelian within me by saying that. But it, it, it is this weird episode where the, the sort of symbolic eroticism is enfolded in what Goethe's trying to do with this play. And I mean, this is where I think it's um, the most intertwined with the plot in the second part. It's a little bit more overt and a little bit more symbolically weird. I mean, Mm -hmm. the second part is, is almost like a, a gigantic bizarre dreamscape. And this one is so tied to reality that, I, I I think that's what makes it tough going. Yeah, that that there are very real repercussions within the play for what the characters do. That it it gets kind of tough for me to disentangle that. Yeah. Well, I think what what, it, what is kind of interesting is this is a bit of a like what had heretofore been a very. Um, sort of abstracted it's the the abstract uh chicken like the abstract comes the chickens come home to roost in the material for all of this all this philosophizing that faust has 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 uh whipped himself up into and and that in itself i think is actually kind of an interesting angle goethe works in here because it's like here's faust applying his philosophy like you you think about like sort of the term applied philosophy well here's faust applying this philosophy that he has you know gotten the assistance of a literal devil to uh to get you know to apply and what happens well he completely destroys a young woman's entire life and has her entire family killed yeah uh, as the repercussions yeah i mean it's, but i guess so i guess for so our audience knows exactly what we're talking about i, I guess we can do the 
we can do like a synopsis of like what what, what is actually happening. Right. <laughs> so here's here's what I propose. Uh, what we're gonna do with this episode is start off with just basic synopsis, go back through and unpack a couple of sort of significant moments, and then come to the end and talk about where we both stand with the ending of this tragedy and really sort of questioning Mm -hmm. whose tragedy is it? Why is it a tragedy? What the hell is going on with that? And then bring up this question that, or, or, or attempt to answer the question that you asked last time. Uh, why is this canonical? I, I, I have some, <laughs> no, like, okay, it's weird. Bloom, uh, puts his emphasis on part two. And I know why is because part two comes closer to the kind of like whacked out visionary works that he really privileges. Right, right. Well, that's it. It seems like you know, part two sort of comes closer to that um, that notion that we've talked about before on the show, where canonical works are not representative of their times, but you know, are of their times, but transcend their time. Yeah, Um, Um, yeah. But part one is the one that everybody knows, and like there are. Okay, Schubert said a text from Faust Part One. Uh, he did another section from Faust. Schumann has an oratorio from Faust. Berlioz did a kind of program symphony on Faust. Liszt did the Faust symphony. Gounod did an opera on Faust. Boito did a an opera on Faust. Mahler mm-hmm. references Faust. Um, there were operas in the 20th century on Faust. Mann did Dr. Faustus. Um, I mean, it, even up to like within the past decade, John Adams did, um, Dr. Atomic, uh, the, the opera basically based on Oppenheimer as an American Faust figure. This, this legend through, um, Goethe's lens. I mean, it it has legs. It mm-hmm. people use it. They take it and use it. And the question is why? Yeah. Um, and I guess the, we'll, we'll 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 address that. Yeah. I guess toward the end of the episode, though. But to, yeah. to jump in, let's see. You know, how is you know Faust now has his uh, well his his Faustian bargain is not the one of ultimate knowledge or anything, but rather his Faustian bargain is he'll get to live forever and do whatever he wants. Until he gets tired of that, right? Uh, well, and and we were talking about it last time. Like it, the the way that Goethe writes it, it's not exactly getting tired of it. It's it's this kind of transcendental moment where all moments collapse into the moment, and it's something that Mephistopheles can't understand by virtue of his being necessarily fallen. So yeah. it's this weird kind of transcendental ideal that Faust wants that he can never have that that Mephistopheles can never supply and if it ever is supplied it will break the contract. So yeah. it's it's something sort of hard to put your finger on it's hard to articulate but it seems sort of in line with the romantic ideal. Okay, so so we left off last time with Faust in the witch's kitchen, and he basically gets like a, a tub full of Viagra, but mm-hmm. that's not the thing that's getting him hard. The thing that gets him hard is the image of the ideal woman that he sees in the looking glass, suggesting that this kind of 
erotic ideal, which is the thing that drives us all, is something internal to him. It's kind of like a projected image outward that he's just sort of striving to achieve that he never can achieve, so on and so forth. I mean, that's that's kind of the basis of how this all operates, right? Um, yeah. Okay, so to pick up with the plot... Uh, after the witch's kitchen, we begin the section of the play that's sort of commonly known as the Gretchen tragedy. Now, the Gretchen tragedy involves Faust falling in love with this peasant girl, um, seducing her, convincing her to administer some kind of sleeping drug to her, um, to her mother and she either over administers or Faust gives her the wrong dose or something goes wrong and she inadvertently kills her mother in order to be able to have sex with Faust. Uh, She becomes damned for a slut amongst the barracks where her brother is. And because her brother believes her to be, you know, the, the, um, and, Sidebar, I'm using sort of denigrating terms and denigrating women's sexuality because that's how the play takes it. These are right, not right. my views. Yeah. Um, but she's damned for a slut and her brother, because he is wounded by her wounded fallen state or whatever the, the hell – um, you know, if you're from the rural South, I suppose you understand this stuff. It kind of hits home for me because I'm from the rural <laughs> South. But uh, anyway, so he has to to. Um, he's not exactly sticking up for her. He's just lashing out because he feels that he is wounded because his sister had sex. I don't, I don't know. Right. So he's, anyway. he's, he, he's now tarnished and embarrassed by the fact that, well, it's kind of, it's kind of like the honor killing thing, right? He, mm-hmm. her, her having, you know, soiled herself reflects poorly on him as his, as the patriarchal protector. Yeah, so, there you go. And yeah. so he, uh, gets in a duel with Faust, Faust, whose hand is guided by Mephistopheles, Kills her brother. Okay. Yeah. Um, then he uh, he goes on to, I don't know, just go to a witch's Sabbath because uh, that freaks him out when he meets this young witch who dances with him naked and then a red mouse pops out of her mouth. I don't know if that would be a deal killer for me, but maybe that speaks more to me. So <laughs> then uh, he... Yeah, lo- loosen up, Claude. Come on, it's the 90s. Right? Uh, <laughs> like, that, was, that was every rave I went to. Uh, anyway, <laughs> the, to get back to it. Um, so that freaks him out. He sees an image of Gretchen in distress. He gets Mephistopheles to take him back to her, finds out she's in jail now because not only did she kill her mother, uh, she got pregnant and killed their child. And so now she's uh, delirious in jail, suffering from some kind of mental breakdown Um, in this scene reminiscent of Ophelia's breakdown in Hamlet. She can't tell reality from whatnot. Faust goes in to try to rescue her. She won't go. Uh, Mephistopheles drags Faust off stage and Gretchen goes to her doom and she is perhaps uh, saved by the divine because Jesus likes abject sinners. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, 
that's the plot, right? But within that, a bunch of weird shit occurs. Okay, let's pull <laughs> yes, back. Indeed. Let's pull back for a second to talk about the the basis for the plot, and I'll just refer to the notes in the Norton. Um, if you haven't been listening, uh, I've been using three different texts: David Luke's translation of Faust Part One, which is really pretty good, um, and, and it's got some some decent notes. I've also been using um, the Stuart Adkins Faust Part 1 and Part 2 that I believe was published by Princeton, which is the one that Bloom recommends and which I think captures more of the variety of Goethe's writing, but which has just minimal to negligent notes. Uh, and then I've been using the the Walter Arndt translation that's put out by Norton and that is really kind of janky as a translation, but the the notes are really, really helpful, like the long notes, the interpretive notes, and the, mm-hmm. the sort of textual notes fill in a lot of the blanks. Okay, so the, the art has a, a kind of a side. Um, it has been persuasively argued that Goethe first conceived the Gretchen tragedy in direct response to the execution for infanticide in Frankfurt on January 14th, 1772 of Susanna Margareta Brandt. Such hmm. external evidence also lends support to the impression any reader will receive from the Gretchen tragedy that she, not Faust, is the central figure of the sequence, that it is her tragedy, and that he functions above all as the instrument of her destruction, however authentic his erotic motives may be. Okay, I think that that sort of gives the game away, and that, that really explains the tension in the text. Mm-hmm. All right, this was a real case, and I was talking th- – this was back a few episodes ago when I was talking to my friend Rachel about the 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 text. I can't remember if she made the comment on air or off air <laughs> because I don't listen to my own podcast. <laughs> uh, that there's heavy speculation that Goethe may have gone to this trial – Oh, okay. Um, it, it, it was an actual case where this this woman was basically loved and left by some Lothario and made pregnant from it. And due to the kinds of uh, social pressures of the day, had the child and then killed it. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, she's, she's put in this impossible position and then gets to, you know, gets to be right. hanged for her trouble. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that... That actually gets at why I think – I guess I'm jumping the gun a little bit. But that gets at why I think this tragedy has legs or that this play has legs. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one of the sort of asides in the notes is that Kierkegaard in either or – and I, I'm kicking myself because I actually read this and I didn't remember this. But oh, yeah. Kierkegaard in either or sort of designates um, – Don Giovanni as one end, or Don Juan, Don Giovanni, Don Juan, whatever, as one end of this, and Faust as the other end of this, these two ways of thinking about the Lothario, or mm-hmm. about pleasure and uh, social constraint. Um, the, the Gretchen tragedy does, in this complicated way, point to certain kinds of social hypocrisy. It, hmm. In the play, there's a scene where Gretchen 
converses with another peasant woman and the peasant woman is being extraordinarily catty about some mutual friend of theirs who is in a situation much like Gretchen's. She had some lover who she believed was one thing, then got her pregnant and split. Um, the, then the, the sort of comrade of Gretchen's basically says, uh, yeah, and good luck to her. You know, she's such a slut. We hate her, so on and so forth. It's that impossible position that women are in. Um, if you don't have sex, then you're a prude, you're stuck up, you're, Mm -hmm. you're so on and so forth. And if you do have sex, you're a whore, you're a slut, you're worthless. Um, everything is really sort of defined by that activity and it's this misogynistic view. And what Goethe shows is that all parts of society, I I guess, work to preserve that system. And so there's nowhere for her to go. There's this, this pointing to the inherent hypocrisy and the flaws of that way of thinking, that sort of small minded, village life, let's turn on whoever, whatever way of thinking. And yet so much, I think this is where you and I are coming at it. So much of the operation is, I mean, it's false. It really is false fault. Right, right. (laughs) And so what that he feels bad about it? Those are fucking crocodile tears, man. Um, People are dead. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like, I, I really don't have... Uh, I, I, I cannot feel sorry for Faust. Right. And, and I think the question I would have is, do you, I mean, are we supposed to, and I, and I know that it's not necessarily like death of the author and all that. We can't read Goethe's mind, blah, 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 blah. But it does seem like the text itself supports the idea that we are meant to identify with Goethe's struggling with this. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or not Goethe's, but Faust's, I should say. Well, I mean, um, it, yeah, go ahead. Oh, but I just mean, like, it, it is interesting that this is kind of, you know, as part of this whole project of reading all these, these books and everything, we, we must necessarily kind of take ourselves out of ourselves in a way to appraise these works, given that they do come from such why such a widely different sort of, come from wildly different cultural assumptions. Right. This is kind of the one that I really, and maybe it's because we're inching up on, modernity as we know it right we're we're getting we're inching up onto you know this is the 19th century we're in now okay we're getting close to the kind of series of conceptual and political and scientific breakthroughs that more or less hold to this day yeah and so i don't know maybe we just don't <laughs> maybe i'm just not being as charitable as i might have been if this was like i don't know a sumerian epic or something well yeah uh, that- yeah. That's the other thing. This hits close, closer to home than what we have seen. Because mm-hmm. I, I was, I was thinking about this on one of my many subway rides. But okay, so the the reigning conflict that we keep having in the works that we keep reading in this section. We we mm-hmm. started with Chaucer, we did Dante, we did Cervantes, Montaigne, Johnson, Milton. There's always this weird tension between authority and experience, right? Yeah. 
I mean, that that was the most overt in Montaigne. And Montaigne didn't really seem to think of it as a tension. He just sort mm-hmm. of thought of it as, well, when given all the options and thinking through the way to act, I suppose you have to go with what you know, and what you know can only really be garnered from experience. And there are good books in Catholicism, yada, 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 but hey, come on. Um, yeah, yeah. I, the, the more, you know, I, I, I guess it's because I'm old. I guess it's because I have two kids. I guess it's because I'm busy and I've had to compromise so much in my life uh, <laughs> in ways that I can't get into on air. But I, I always... For the past three years, all I've been thinking about is Montaigne. That's mm-hmm. I, that's the thing that has hit me the most. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, and I skipped yeah, over Moliere. But um, yeah. that's the thing that has hit me the most when, okay, justify the things that you do. And sometimes it really just comes down to experience. Right. Um, you know, I was critiquing... In in cl- a class I was teaching about you know four or five weeks ago, uh, the the operations of Emerson because Emerson always strikes me as the perpetual adolescent, and Emerson mm-hmm. even says in Self Reliance, you know, give me the mind of a fourteen year old who's assured of his dinner, and okay, that's nice, but have you ever tried to have a conversation with a fourteen year old? They're idiots. <laughs> And they're just obnoxious punks, and I would much prefer a cynical, refined, uh, wine-sipping madman, um, because (laughs) that cynical refinement at least has some experience under its belt to know the danger of what it's doing. Right. It it lends actual weight to the profundity, because if there's one thing... That, you know, a 14-year-old can do. It's be profound while also being just feather light. Yeah, and that's what I was saying was that, you know, that's nice, but you can't be 14-year-old. You can't be a 14-year-old forever. And this kid set up, well, why not? And (laughs) I, I wanted to unload with just, well, let me tell you about this. And let me tell you about this. And let me tell you about this. And it's it's experience. That's why the fuck not, but I can't get into all of those traumatic experiences right now because we just don't have time. Um, anyway, the, to, to pull back from it, yeah, Goethe seems the closest to that kind of Emersonian outlook where it's about the individual and not the, the, negotiation or tension with Mm -hmm. some kind of authoritative source telling you what the truth is, but knowing deep down what it's not. Uh, In in Goethe, we're fully on the side of the individual against society, man. And that, (laughs) I mean, however, however, you know, rough it is, however hard a time we are having to suss this out. But that's, to me, what seems the most modern. And that's also what seems the most, uh, I guess, lazy. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I, I think we have to remember that he, he started writing this as a very young man when, you know, this would have seemed revolutionary and ended up uh, fin- finishing off as a much older man. Uh, but he still has that kind of 
thumb my nose at conformity attitude where you're like, yeah. dude, you're, you're 40 and you own a castle. Just relax. <laughs> right. Um, what does Les Claypool have to prove now? <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, that, sorry, this, this is a long, weird kind of ranty aside where I suppose we've digressed from, from what we're taking from this. But I guess that's, that is what seems the most modern about mm-hmm. it. And it really does seem modern in that we are, whatever our stance is, I think the play wants us to side with Faust. Right. Against certain kinds of social constraints. And, and that gets yeah. me to the kind of, structure of the play by the time we get to the the Valpurgis Nox, the the witch's sabbath that's that's a direct parody of the earlier springtime leaving the I, I, ivory tower to go yeah, yeah. find rejuvenation with the the social setting Right, right. So that's right. It's it's a and I, you know what? I feel smart that I noticed that. <laughs> this is typically this is typically the kind of uh, literary subtlety that just flies right past my uh, my dunderhead. Um, but yeah, it, it is a like it felt so much like the scene of like wandering amongst the hoi polloi. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this case, the hoi polloi are you know nude gyrating witches. Yeah, and okay, the, the, it happens in a. We're just going to jump all the hell over here, but um, it, it happens in in three parts. The the Valpurgisnacht. Okay, so we're jumping ahead to the Valpurgisnacht, and then I want to get to the um, some of the other stuff that happens before. But mm-hmm. the the Valpurgisnacht, it's it's the witch's Sabbath, and it takes place in the Hearts Mountains, and this is sort of like a traditional Germanic stuff. And back mm-hmm. in the the earliest iteration of this, Goethe wanted this to be kind of like a wild. He wanted an orgy. Um, right. He wanted a wild, crazy metal Germanic orgy. Uh, like whatever you can think of for whatever, you know, death metal album cover. That's what he wanted. (laughs) And um, what happened was that was the plan. But by the time he went to write it, he'd already been in Italy for a while and was like, well, Germanic orgy, that's boring. I want to class it up a bit, you know, let's, let's, you know, refine this a bit. And so he was sort of like, ah, I guess I gotta write the orgy now. And so he toned down a lot of the stuff. There was supposed to be um, a sort of satanic, uh, basically full-blown satanic craziness where it ends with the witches kissing a goat's ass. Um, he scrapped all that, but he he did sort of retain parts of it and then filtered it through Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. So instead of going full on Germanic mythology, he mm-hmm. classicists it up. If I can use <laughs> right. that term, uh, by going back to Shakespeare and sort of drawing on the way that Shakespeare uses the 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 fairies, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it it happens in three parts. There's the approach to the festival. There's the attempt to join the procession, and then Faust gets sort of separated and lost. And rejoining society in this in this moment means that it's suffocation. 
right? Yeah. So where the earlier uh, sort of Easter Sabbath was all about, you know, going out during spring and finding life and reconnection with the common folk, this is suffocation by the common folk. This is the dark side of village life. Yeah. Um, you know, filtered through uh, mythology and all that stuff and, and witchcraft and a, a bunch of other sort of like weird, silly stuff. There's the guy who's obsessed with his own asshole, who's a parody of a critic that Goethe hated. Um, <laughs> right. But, uh, oh yeah, the... The Procto Visionary in Atkins translation. Uh, Procto meaning, you know, like proctologist. He's looking up his Yeah, eyes. yeah. He was this critic who was fond of enemas, if I remember correctly. Yes. Um, enemas or um, uh, laxatives or, or something. It had to do with shitting, but it was this yeah, critic who there was, was. I actually did want to just select one of his lines specifically because I, I did think this was really funny and I, I really enjoyed this that the, the Procto Visionary is there observing this, you know, wild demonic manifestation and is just absolutely just pissed off and mortified that this is even happening. Uh, and he has a line here where he says, uh, you are still there? Now that's impossible. Please disappear. We have achieved enlightenment. Infernal rabble that ignores all rules of logic? We're highly rational, despite all ghosts and tangle. How long I've tried to sweep away delusions, yet there's always dirt. Things are impossible. <laughs> he's, just, he's just there, just like, just like, just scolding like a school mom. Yeah. All, all this, all this supernatural uh, uh, craziness going on around him by being all like, no, 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 we've had an enlightenment. Get get away with all this. You're all yeah, done. <laughs> I mean, and that's, I guess it's Goethe trying to negotiate classicism mm-hmm. in the Sturm und Drang, right? Or right, right. Which is, which, which is, of course, as you know, as you talked about in that background episode was this response against enlightenment yeah. thinking and values. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the, the Valpurgis Nost, it's, it's kind of the fun part of this, but it's also yeah. sort of like the the part where he just he couldn't pull it off to a degree. He was just kind of like tired of the ideas and then mm-hmm. sort of recycled it as society is suffocation. Yeah. Um so and, and that's sort of how it all sort of cycles through the the Gretchen tragedy. Okay, so yeah. what they do is first uh, they go out to the street and Faust sees Gretchen or Margareta. It's it's kind of interchangeable in the text. He sees her and he desires her and really, really wants to have her. So he says to uh, Mephistopheles, okay, he, he first tries to come on to Gretchen and that doesn't work because she's such a pure angelic creature. So he right. says to Mephistopheles, you got to go get me that woman. Uh, yeah. So Mephistopheles is like, come on, man, I can't make people fall in love with you. Uh, which seems to suggest, again, that Mephistopheles has these limits. Right. He can make it look like things are happening, but he can't actually make things happen. He can't coerce the affections. Right. So Faust gets him to go um, to go 
dig up some treasure from somewhere. So he goes and does. They sneak into a room and leave it there. And then Faust has a good time just kind of creeping out in her room. It's very blue velvet. Um, <laughs> it is. You're right. It, it, yeah. it absolutely is. Like the the creep factor in Faust is high. Um, he he sits down in a chair and sort of like, all right, this is Atkins. Uh, he throws himself into a leather armchair beside the bed. Grant me a welcome, you whose open arms have held in joy or pain past generations, to think how many times some group of children clung to the sides of this ancestral throne. Perhaps when still a plump-cheeked child, my love, thanking her grandfather for his Christmas gift, here kissed his withered hand with dutiful respect. I feel, dear girl, stirring about me the spirit of that rich contentment which daily teaches you maternal virtues, bidding you place the table cover neatly. You've and strew the sand upon the floor in patterns. Your precious hand is godlike in its power to make this cottage paradise. And here he lifts one of the bed curtains. What awesome ecstasy enthralls me. Okay. Um, so (laughs) there's a lot going on there, man. Like, uh, I'm going to go out to a really weird place to bring it back around. Um, so first in his erotic reverie, he sits in this chair and imagines he's the grandfather that she who whose hand she is kissing and then mm-hmm. uh moves from that to my goodness how hot she is when she's such perfect breeding material until the point that he opens up the bed and says oh my erotic reverie has hit a peak ah Okay. There's there's <laughs> right. no subtext. This is just text. I want to be yeah. your grandfather. Uh, I want to breed you out, and I see the perfect place to do this. And again, listener, this isn't uh, – this is not me. These are not mine. Right, right. This is yeah. – uh, This is Faust. Um, the, the erotics are, are straight on the page and it's this creepy dude sneaking into the room doing all this. I mean, yeah. this, the, like I said, the creep factor is high. I don't know why I'm supposed to be liking this guy. Um, yeah. he has this whole monologue on how deeply stirred he feels. All right. That's, that's a euphemism for being, Around, yeah, you're, yeah, he's horned up, you know. No, right. it, it, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, this whole thing. It, it, I mean, it's it, it really is blue velvet, right? Yeah, sneaking I, into um, the woman's room and, and creeping out. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, 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 I actually have formed a uh, this is sort of mildly tangential, but. Um, I, uh, as, as regular sisters know, I'm a bit, I'm a record store guy. You know, I, I, I love pop music. I love digging through the, you know, the, the crates metaphorically since I don't crate dig anymore. Uh, but rather, you know, crate dig on the digital, uh, archives. But, um, so, uh, one of the genres I really like a lot is, uh, late seventies, early eighties power pop. Um, you mm-hmm. know, like guitar driven, uh, pop music. And I was listening to a particular song one t- one day. I believe it was, uh, Remember the Lightning by 2020. And it struck me that I realized the perfect mode, the perfect sort of mental state to be in to write a good, solid power pop song 
is to have been horny for the very first time in your life and run home to write a song about it. And <laughs> and I think a lot of the great classics of the genre, I think uh, I think this rubric holds. I might actually write a critical essay about it. But I'm getting a strong vibe off that kind of feeling with 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 Faust here. You know, he's like he just does not know how to handle his high. Yeah, I mean, that's the strange thing because he's so old, and you wonder what was he doing at age right? 14? And he's supposed to be so world weary when all this begins. Yeah. Yeah, and that's okay. Proofrock, T.S. Eliot's love song of J.F. for Proofrock was written when he was 22, 23, about a guy who's maybe my age now. And my age now, I, I'm much more interested in Montaigne and meditating, oh, I remember that, and oh, this was really sort of fascinating. Wow, I suppose my penis really is rather small, but <laughs> in comparison to Virgil, I must think, you know, it's, it's a lot different than what I was thinking old age would be uh, when I was 23. It's yeah. like a 23-year-old's idea of what it is to be old, and that's kind of what I feel about um, about Faust here. There's there so many parts that seem like... I mean, and, and again, this was composed over a long time, but there's so much here that seems like a young person's idea of what it would mm-hmm. be like to be old and striving. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, it, it's... It, I don't find it interesting. <laughs> Um, uh, anyway, so the, he, to, to get back to it, Faust, they leave the jewels, they sneak out and Gretchen Margarita, she basically does a strip tease on stage. Now this isn't Faust doing this. This is Goethe doing this. She comes on stage. I mean, if you want to stage this, but in the text, she comes out, she gets undressed, gets as naked as you want her to get, mm-hmm. uh, sings a song and then notices the jewels. So she's as naked as you want her to be playing with a bunch of jewelry that she finds sitting on her bed. Now, there really is a fascinating question. What is a poor girl supposed to do with all of this jewelry? Yeah. It's like, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, what do you expect her to do? She can't wear it. She right. Can't I mean, do anything you're talking about it. like village life. Like everyone knows everyone else's business. You exactly. show up with like expensive jewelry. Everyone's going to notice and it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, she gives it to a Catholic priest because she's like, I don't know what this is. And then we have the promenade. Okay, so we have the bedroom, the promenade, the neighbor's house. We have all these scenes in quick succession where where Faust is really um, working Mephistopheles and it becomes something of a traditional um, closet comedy where – uh, Mephistopheles is the pander. He's the go-between, and Faust is, you know, the lover. Uh, he wants Gretchen. This is really sort of stock characters in some weird way. So they keep pushing on that, and it just sort of acts out this weird farce. 
Um, they go to a neighbor's house. Uh, Mephistopheles tells the neighbor who's friends with Gretchen, uh, hey, I was with your husband when he died, but he left you all this shit. So, hey, uh, he was with somebody else and he was really, really bad to you and he's dead now and you can do what you want. And he gets uh, Faust to perjure himself in, in order to ingratiate himself to Magretta. And Faust has scruples. <laughs> Mephistopheles is like, wait, you have scruples now? That's surprising to me <laughs> right then we have a street where uh faust is really really sort of pushing mephistopheles come on come on uh get her to fall in love with me and then we have a garden and that's where uh mephistopheles and martha the um the neighbor are walking in one lane and Faust and Gretchen are walking in another lane. And this really did remind me of a lot of 18th century rake comedies. This is kind of like yeah. a common scene that you would see in a lot of those kinds of plays where you have the go-between doing the going-betweening and right. the two lovers trying to suss it out between them in this weird – semi-private yet public space. Yeah. You know, where you could attain a kind of privacy that's not actually privacy. And so it's that weird negotiation until Gretchen and Faust break off and go to a summer house and are on the verge of, shall we say, committing an indiscretion when <laughs> Mephistopheles shows up and Faust gets mad. Mm-hmm. That's the summer house. And then we have the forest and cave. Okay. Yes. So, so this is so, folks. This is what we were talking about at the top of the show. Uh, if you if um, you've been if you've been in suspense for forty minutes. <laughs> so basically, what happens is um, in the middle of a torrential, sublime thunderstorm, Faust absconds to a cave in the middle of the mountains in order to commune with the oneness of all being, which Mephistopheles uh, basically points out is, so you've just been up here masturbating. Um, <laughs> yes. it, it's, it's really sort of weird. This is where Faust has all of the transcendental spillings. I, I can't stop myself from participating in this. Um, he just gushes. Uh, he starts sort of like letting loose with all the um, transcendental stuff. And I'll give you a, a sample. This is from Atkins' translation, that nothing perfect ever can be man's. I feel that here together with this bliss uh, which brings me ever nearer to the gods. You gave me the companion I can now not do without. Though cold and insolent, he makes me scorn myself and turns your gifts to nothing with a single whispered word. Untiringly, he fans within my breast a burning passion for her loveliness. I reel between desire and enjoyment, and in enjoyment languish for desire. Okay. Um... This brings us back to the novella in the middle of Don Quixote. Um, what is Faust in love with or what is Faust aroused by? Uh, I wish I knew the German and I wish I had had time to sort of inquire uh, 
of my German speaking friends, what the fuck is going on here in the actual text? <laughs> but it yeah. sounds as if he's aroused by the go between. Yeah. Um, there's this way in which the deferral of, um, the deferral of satisfaction is giving further rise to his arousal. Well, uh, what struck me is that it's a very, it's a very courtly love kind of conception, I think, where the, 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 the entire, like there's this neurotic fixation on the desire and the desire being frustrated. And that that is the eroticism, the frustration of the, like you have to whip yourself into the frenzy and frustrate it. And that is the, your eroticism. Yeah. So, all right. I'm going to be extremely vulgar here. Lay it on me, man. All right. But he (laughs) comes through edging. (laughs) That's right. God, you're absolutely right. Wait, it's <laughs> and I apologize to our listeners. Here, here I am dressing it up in like you know uh, Occitan troubadour language, but no, man, you, you hit the nail on the head. I, I, maybe it's my Mephistophelian, but it, it sounds as if this is desire achieved through desire deferred, right? Which would be. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Coming through edging. 
Right. That the yeah. act of edging is what makes him come or the the Okay, anyway. Um blue ball. I guess we 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 should right, right. And we should we should stress I the I don't think at any point in the text there is any actual uh effluvia. Happening. Well, until Mephistopheles <laughs> makes it so. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mephistopheles enters and says, will it be long before you've had enough of this? How can this life continue to amuse you? No doubt it's good to try it once, but then go on again to something else. Uh, Mephistopheles knows what's up. Uh, yeah. Faust says, I wish you'd other things to do than plague me when I am content without you. Mm-hmm. Um, in absolute isolation, he can find content. And Mephistopheles sort of goes on a few lines. You miserable mortal, how on earth would you have carried on without me? My treatment's given you some longish intermissions from the delirium of your delusions, and if it weren't for me, you'd have long since sauntered away from this terrestrial sphere. Um, Look, I'm the thing that's keeping you alive. Um, Me spurning your desire through, you know, introducing this thing you can never have is the thing that's keeping you running. So this gets back to sort of like the, the symbolic stuff that we were talking about uh, in the, the first episode that there's this way in which Mephistopheles as trigger for desire is a good thing. Like it, yeah. it, it keeps Faust going. It's that kind of energy that keeps life moving. Yeah. Um, but the repercussions of that are really so dire in this this part of the play. All right, so uh, Faust gives him some more. He says, can you not understand what new vitality I gained from this sojourn in desolate solitude? Still, if you had some inkling, you would be devil enough to envy me my happy, happiness. And... Um, Mephistopheles responds, super terrestrial delights to lie on mountaintops in dew and darkness, embracing earth and sky ecstatically, to be puffed up as though you were a god, to probe the earth with urgent intuitions, to feel your heart at one with all six days creation, enjoying who knows what in your great arrogance, and now no more an earthbound mortal, blissfully merging with the all. And then to let your lofty intuitions, he makes an expressive gesture end in a way <laughs> that I is. can't mention. Um, okay. <laughs> Mephistopheles is accusing Faust, rightly or wrongly, we don't know it in the text, of basically just sitting in this cave jacking it. Right. Um, that's, that's what it really sort of comes down to. And there's a side of me that can't help but see Mephistopheles as kind of right here. Oh yeah, um, and well, I mean, more than that, I think this is a bit of self-critics of self-crit. Mm-hmm. This is a this is a bit of Goethe as a, as a ponderous, thoughtful young man. You know, he has Mephistopheles there to tell him, like, chill out. You're just wanking in a cave, idiot. <laughs> well, I, I I honestly like I I think that's a viable reading of this, just because it's such a it's such a weird digression in in the sort of the story in the text. I honestly do think, like, maybe this was, like, I don't know, Goethe telling himself, like, yeah, you know, calm down. And, and I say that because it ties into what we were talking about earlier about how, like, Faust himself is written an old man as a young man might imagine an old man being. Right. And so to that 
point, he's an old man who is actually just a young man. And Mephistopheles gets to tell him, like, all right, simmer down. (laughs) Well, okay, this gets me to another bizarre digression. Um, This reminds me of two quintessential moments in English Romanticism. One is Wordsworth's Tintern Abbey, Mm -hmm. where um, being in this place, experiencing the natural world in the particular way that he experiences it, seems to trigger in Wordsworth the transcendental moment, like the the moment where um, the the disconnection between self and world uh, sort of dissolves and you become one with <clears throat> the totality of being and you can intuit this kind of holistic um, – really kind of uh, Hindu or Buddhist understanding of Dharma and karma of mm-hmm. the all intertwined within the all. It becomes this sort of metaphysical mystical moment where you are elevated beyond the material into a full understanding of your place in the universe and all of the sort of acid tinged mystic weirdness that goes along with that. Yeah. All right. But it also, in Mephistopheles' response, calls to mind um, George Gordon, Lord Byron's Don Juan. Okay, now pause for a second. I know it's Don Juan. You know it's Don Juan. (laughs) Everyone knows it's Don Juan. Uh, But it's called Don Juan because that's how Byron pronounced it, and we know that's how he pronounced it because he rhymes everything with Juan, not Juan. Okay. Uh-huh. We good? Yeah. Good. I love it. So, love it. Um, in Don Juan, Juan, um, the, the joke of the thing is that it's written sort of in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars, where he says, you know, I need a hero, an uncommon want, when every new day produces a new one, um, which he rhymes with Juan. But uh, the joke is that, <laughs> you know, the papers give us these ridiculous military heroes left, right, and center. And so what Byron wants is not a fighter but a lover and so he picks Don, mm-hmm. Don Juan but he tweaks the story of Don Juan and starts it when Don Juan is 16 years old and the joke or, or the kind of running joke of the whole poem is that Don Juan is not the seducer but the seduced he's the passive ah. uh, yeah. participant who just falls in bed with women across Europe. Uh, it begins with his basically his first seduction where he's a 16-year-old kid. His mother has kept him innocent his entire life and has not given him any information about sex and sexuality. And she has this younger friend who's 23 married to a 60-year-old. And the 23-year-old woman, uh, Julia, she uh, she knows what's what, mm-hmm. but Juan has no idea. And so Julia starts to get a sense that she's turned on by Juan and that maybe that there's something there. And she's wrestling with herself and she has all kinds of things. And Juan has no idea what's going on. So he goes out into the um, 
into the countryside to meditate on metaphysics and to meditate on all this other abstract stuff. And then the thing he keeps coming back to is how hot Julie is. Um, What, what Byron is doing in that is sort of positing that all of this romantic transcendentalist bullshit is uh, sexual frustration, finding uh, uh, a basically outlet in the sublimity of metaphysical speculation. And he has, a whole lot of fun just like twisting the knife in Wordsworth and Coleridge. And basically what it comes down to for Byron is, hey man, free love, because if we can um, get ourselves beyond our hangups, maybe we can get ourselves beyond other kinds of social and political hangups and stuff like that. Well, that didn't work. But anyway, that's what where Byron is coming from. Yeah. Um, in this weird moment, this one weird exchange, we've got all of English romanticism on the words worthy inside and all of English romanticism on the sort of Byron and Shelley side kind of clashing together at once. Yeah. So that's what was really sort of fascinating about it. But I come down on Mephistopheles side, dude, uh, you're just solipsistically jerking it in this cave. <laughs> Right. That, that's all that's going on. He says, enough of this. Your love is there in town, beginning to feel confined in gloom. You're never absent from her mind. Her love for you is overpowering. Uh, it's not long since the spate of your mad passion came like a brook that floods when snows are melting. You let it pour into her heart, and now your freshet is a shallow brook again. It might be well, I think, if our grand gentleman, instead of sitting us in this forest kingdom, left his throne and remunerated that poor young thing for her devotion. It is a pity how time seems to drag for her. She stands at the window and watches the clouds moving away above the old town wall. If I had the wings of a bird... That's her song, day in and day out, and half of every night. Sometimes she's cheerful, though mostly sad, when sometimes she has no tears left. Then she'll seem calm again, and always she's in love. Um, mm. Dude, what are you doing here? Just, she's, yeah. she's right there. Like, what, what's going on here? He's so wrapped up in his philosophical reverie and his in love with being aroused yeah. that he doesn't even go for culmination when it's available to him. Yeah. Well, of course, because that would mean, of course, the the at least temporary dismissal of the arousal, which he's enjoying so much. Exactly. And which, of course, Mephistopheles wants that. Because, you know, that brings him closer to that, uh, that, you know, that singularity when he can like, oh, I call in the deal and now you're my servant in hell because, you know, there you go. You reached it. Yeah. Uh, so it's and, and in all of this poor Gretchen, <laughs> it's just, well, that's a, it's just, okay. it's just this, the battlefield between these two jerks. I mean, it's. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to read a note that is absolutely regrettable in the Norton uh in, in the Norton edition, um, they, they try to excuse themselves from feminist critique and uh, it doesn't go well. <laughs> Good luck, buddy. Look, I can, <laughs> I can apply a Marxist lens to fucking anything you want. Like, you're not escaping feminism, buddy. Yeah. 
A word also should be said about Gretchen's character as a woman in the context of feminist critical interest and the literary portrayal of women. Gretchen is far more complex than a mere innocent victim. Okay, that's kind of true. Her social status, however little we see of it, as in her relation to her mother and to her neighbor, Frau Martha uh, Schwertlein, clearly reflects all the virtues of bourgeois life, even if, under simple circumstances, she also represents genuine Christian virtues, presumably Catholic. Uh, Since we first meet her, she comes from confession, whereas Mephisto emphasizes she has no sins to confess. Yet Gretchen proves susceptible to to susceptible to temptation in response to the jewels secured by the devil as a gift to her, even if she gives the first casket to her mother who passes it on to the church. She keeps the second casket a secret and wears the jewelry at at the home of Frau Martha. Even more, she is the subject of Frau's flattery and apparent devotion as manifested in the banter between them in the garden. When she flees from Faust in the Garden Pavilion, fully expecting him to follow her, she returns his kiss and declares, Dearest man, I love you with all my heart. Uh, they're trying to make the case that she's, well, she's a complicated character. That's true to a degree, but she's still a cartoon. It's she's, still like, a carto- she's still a cartoon who, who is being toyed with by supernatural forces that yeah. she does not know exist. The one so, thing... So, you know... <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that that's the thing. She's... She's not quite the lady in the fridge, but she's not not the lady in the fridge. And if yeah, you're not familiar yeah. with that trope, that's um, this trope taken from comics that that sort of signifies the woman is there as sort of the animus for the man to act. Um, it, okay, the one thing I will say is that she's allowed to be aroused. And that is where I think there's something to Goethe's treatment here. Um, if, if Faust, go- okay, uh, I'm trying not to be creepy. If, if Faust <laughs> is allowed to sort of head off to his wank cave, then her corresponding moment is agitatedly spinning the spinning wheel. Yeah, you get me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, she has her own scene where her sort her arousal is sort of sublimated into singing right, the song right. of the spinning wheel. Yeah. And, and I think that's the one thing that I can kind of allow to this critique. Goethe is not denying women some kind of sexual agency. Yeah. Uh, it's it's heavily tempered because at the end of the day, that sexual agency is curtailed by social demands. Um, everything would be okay if Faust and Gretchen could just be out in the open and just have sex like people do. But right. those social demands drag on them, lead Gretchen to have to poison her mother and so on and so forth or feel as if she has to do that and then uh, it all goes downhill but you're right she's an object for Mephistopheles and Faust and that's it yeah I, I maybe it's something in translation and this gets back to our debate about or or, or our, our conversation about what makes this um, canonical, I can, right. I can, this is the problem with translation. I can recognize the moments where 
Goethe's being he's being highly nuanced, he's being highly suggestive. I mm-hmm. can recognize that those moments are there, but I can't recognize them. Yeah. I, I it's it's like German is a, a, a tough language to translate and poetry is really, really tough to translate anyway because you can get the meaning but you can't get the affective resonance. Right. That That's something I – as a uh, as a very poor student of German, I, I took two years in uh, high school and two years in college. Um, I actually – due to my method of cheating in high school, I led my teacher to create a new policy that all book bags must be at the front of the room when we take vocabulary tests. Um, but well, they, okay. With- I, I took um, – I took three years of German in high school and four semesters in college. But you got to remember that I grew up in the rural South. So German was something like, Guten Tag, wie geht's mit dir? Oh, mir geht's guten dish. Oh, nicht schlecht, aber nichts hier, du mein Hund. Er hat mein Hausaufgaben gegessen. Oh, das ist schlecht. I mean, was, I will say that was one point of pride that I had is that my pronunciation was good. I, I did not. <laughs> I could not for the life of me remember any grammar, but I could at least pronounce things. Anyway, I, I say all that to, to set up that I, I, you know, don't consider me an expert on German language, yeah. but grammat- the grammatical nature of the language, especially when translating into English, because I think yeah. German is – and especially like it's a – it's it's fool's gold for a translator, right? Because yeah, we have yeah, so yeah, many yeah. cognate words because our languages are – pretty closely related as far as languages go. Right. So we have a lot, a lot of words and sounds in common, but the actual way that those are put together are very, very different. And I think a lot is lost in the fact that with German, I, I kind of the, the, the stereotype about it is that like you string everything together and then the verb comes last. Right. And I can see how that's a massive problem for anyone translating poetry, especially because, you know, English, of course, word order is, essential to to any kind of making sense of any kind of sentence, right? We have used word order as a grammatical element. Not all languages do that. I mean, Latin famously, it just does all of its, all of the grammatical heft is done with the use of uh, declensions and, and endings and things like that. So you can technically, you can arrange all the words in a Latin sentence in any order and it means the same thing, but it has a rhetorical edge to it when you arrange them a certain way or whatever. English, of course, is not like that. You have to have them in a certain order. German is, I think, has this kind of blend of features that lends it to, or or rather like, it has a lot of those kind of like inflections and declensions, blah, 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 this grammarian talk that nobody likes um, to, to the point, you know, to a point far beyond what English has. English is so dependent on word order. German is also dependent on word order to a lesser extent in that it's very important wherever the verb goes. Everything yeah. else is a little more loosey-goosey. But wherever the verb goes is very important. And I can see that being a real nightmare for like translating any kind of like nuance or music in the language. Yeah, that's that's the sense I get. I can see the places where he's <clears throat> really showing off. And there's so much variety in here. There really is... I mean, it goes beyond admirable. It's an astounding variety in the kinds of verse he uses, in the shift back and forth from verse to prose, in just the the things he brings to the table. I can recognize it, but I can't feel it. And yeah. that, I think, has to do with poetry and translation. Um, 
with, with okay with something like Cervantes, it wasn't that huge a deal because a simple gloss can give you what you need to know, and you mm-hmm. lose a lot. I mean, you lose a lot in Don Quixote by oh, not yeah, being I'm able certain. to to recognize the kind of old Castilian that Don Quixote is using. But there's right. still not as much loss as I feel like I get here. I like I I think part of what drives us and makes us so attractive is that variety that he seems to have. And I can sense just from the notes and the annotations and everything, the kinds of nuance that he has. And I mean, we, we spent, I don't remember how long talking about the terms of the contract, which are untranslatable, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it's those moments like that, that sort of like veer off and you're like, okay, how is this going? What is this doing? But um, there's something about this that, that really leaves me cold uh, with Gretchen that it really doesn't feel like justice is done to the character. I, I don't feel like there's much to the character beyond being this kind of cartoon. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like there's much with Faust beyond being a cartoon. And, you know, I regret it again and again, but I said it to Rachel a few episodes ago. Uh, Mephistopheles is the only character I really connect yeah. with. Because, yeah. I mean, I guess that speaks to my own fallenness, but I... No, I, no, no. Look, look, look. We'll just... Uh, uh, it's the modern condition. There. Okay. I, there I, I absolved you. All right. So, speaking of absolution... Um, all right. So, Gretchen goes through horror after horror after horror. We have her sort of... Um, meeting a, a, a friend and hearing the friend sort of debase this mutual friend who got pregnant and then all this horrible stuff happened to her. And then we have, you know, by the city wall and the cathedral where she has this sort of vision of this evil spirit that keeps damning her. And so while she's going through all this torment, I mean, Faust just goes off to the witch's Sabbath just because there's no real reason. Um, Mephisto just says, basically, um, Hey, you want to have some fun? <laughs> so sure, why <laughs> yeah. not? So th- that's where we get this turn and, you know, society goes from good to bad. And then we get a whole bunch of aphorisms that Goethe had just saved up from his days hanging with Schiller and needed to put them somewhere. And so he just shoves them into the play. Um, we have this weird uh, sort of pageant for Oberon and Titania, the fairy queen and king. Well, fairy king, Oberon, fairy queen, Titania in mm-hmm. Midsummer Night's Dream. So he just interposes this interlude from Midsummer Night's Dream with all of these aphoristic sayings that he just kind of had laying around and didn't know where to put them. So he just put them in here because why not? Yeah. Um, and, and that's <laughs> what I mean. Like there's something about the variety and, and well, really just the variety of poetic form that he utilizes that he seems to just be able to spout out at a moment's notice. Yeah, that's that's really kind of amazing. I mean, it it sort of reminds me of that Joycean facility with language, where he can just um, do anything with twelve words, and all of a sudden you're like, "Wow, how did you put that together?" Um, yeah. But then 
we finally move on to the Drury Day of Field and the Night the Open Field. Um, Mephistopheles and Faust get a bunch of horses to try to go save Gretchen. They get to the dungeon and can't do it. And at the end of the play, I mean, it's really sort of up to the translation. This is really uh, up to the interpretation is Gretchen saved or not? Or what mm-hmm. ex- exactly is this? Um, she won't go with them. She is lost in her guilt for everything that she's done. But she seems to want to... She seems to want to live up to her sins. That yeah. she wants to own it. Right. Um, and she has this line towards the end, divine justice in you. I placed my trust, uh, Mephistopheles to Faust, come or I'll abandon both of you. Uh, Gretchen says, I am your child father. Save me. Angels and heavenly hosts compass me about and keep me safe. Heinrich, I fear and loathe you. Mephistopheles says she is judged. Um, Depending on the text, either a voice from above or Gretchen herself says she is saved. Hmm. And Mephistopheles to Faust, away with me, and they disappear. And then a voice from within growing faint, Heinrich, Heinrich. Uh, Heinrich is the name that Faust gave to Gretchen uh, as, you know, his identity. Yeah. And the the thing is who says she's saved is it a voice from beyond saying she's saved is it she herself um sort of asserting her salvation and um it's it's this weird moment in the text and i was i was kind of curious about this so i texted rachel the the scholar who i i talked to a few episodes ago um mm-hmm. why is gretchen saved what what exactly has she done to earn salvation? And all she wrote back was, I don't know. In a lot of ways, it's a very Protestant text. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is like, well, she earned her salvation by fully owning up to her depravity, quote unquote. Yeah. Right. She earns her salvation by being an abject sinner who is desperate for help. And, and that is an especially Protestant conception of what God's, God is looking for. <laughs> yeah. So is this kind of like <clears throat> Goethe's Protestantism coming back to play in opposition to what appears to be her Catholicism in the play? Like she's coming yeah. from confession, <clears throat> right? Right. Uh, right. Lutherans don't do confession, to, to my knowledge. Um, yeah. you know, the, so is this kind of like a dig at Catholicism by way of this regressive? Well, Lutheran? I mean, I, th- I think it might be not even necessarily a dig, but rather a kind of a an illustration of how Protestantism supersedes Catholicism. Uh-huh. Like, it's not even so much a matter of like it's bad necessarily, although I'm, <laughs> I'm sure many, many Protestant thinkers, especially at the time, were ready to say that. But rather, I, I think it's like a sort of an illustration of there's the, the, the Catholic conception of having necessarily having to go through the mediator of the church. Right. And the church hierarchy and the church sort of ritual mm-hmm. is in the end, that's just sort of pointless filigree on the actual relationship that took place. Right. And so, the, so I, she achieves that on her own 
in the dungeon. So individuality trumps the the institution. Institutionality, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. The that the, and that the institution cannot, you know, the institution itself isn't necessarily impeding the individual relationship, although it might, but it's also unnecessary to it. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, and that's it. Yeah. So there you yes, have it. And that's the end of the play. <laughs> well, okay. This, this gets us back one more time to, all right, this is what I think we're wrestling with. Um, we're wrestling with, we're wrestling with how the play feels, how the play wants us to feel and how we actually feel about it. I'm disappointed. Yeah. Um, I'm disappointed because the, (sighs) this poor woman, (laughs) The poor child, the mother who did nothing wrong, mm-hmm. the brother is a chump, good riddance, but like Faust does all this stuff and then gets to moan, oh, I suffered because I hurt somebody else. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. It, it, it reminds me of a Smith song, right? It, this is a Morrissey joint <laughs> where no matter what happens, no matter who's hurt, I'm going to be the sad one about it. Yeah. And, and and I say that and I say that as someone despite Morrissey's execrable politics, I do love the man's output during his time with the Smiths and uh, the first couple solo records. I'm going to cop to that. But well, yeah, I mean, and that's that's the feel I'm getting from it. Yeah, it's it's it really is sort of that. And the question is what makes this canonical? I think that that spoke to the time. And I think mm. that was the first like like I said, from the stuff we've read, this is the first full-throated um, up with the individual text that we've read. Everything else has I, been a negotiation. Yeah. This has not yeah. been a negotiation. This has been like straight up, hey, uh, institution bad, society bad, individual yeah. good – and so it seems like we've crossed that threshold, and that's how I think it speaks. I think, okay, it seems as if the time, either the translation is bad, or the time read more into Gretchen than was there, and perhaps others saw in that relationship something that I can't say. Yeah, you know, um, but it 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 is presented as erotic drive in opposition to societal restraint, where they want the erotic drive to win out. Um, instead of having to negotiate that restraint the emphasis in this place seems to be on the erotic drive winning out, meaning that it's the individual experience winning out. So this is not what we've been reading beforehand. That must've been revolutionary at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I I think, I think you hit upon it. That really is. And, you know, we can think about what's happening well, what's happening with institutions in in the German speaking regions of Europe at the time, right? Right. This is this is the just total evaporation of the Holy Roman Empire. 
as an institution. I mean, that was th- th- that was a this kind of uh, you know Austria had gotten its ass beaten by Napoleon again and again. Uh, the he had basically been able to dictate terms. I think. I, I think so. During the writing of this, I hadn't really thought about this up until now. But the writing of Faust was transpiring during the wars, the Napoleonic Wars, where the old order was being crushed left and right, fighting back viciously. Of course, it wasn't a cakewalk. But you think about you know what are the institutions at hand? Well, there's the Catholic Church. It, it had been completely upended in France. Yeah, I mean, just the, the anti-clericalism of the revolutionary movement had just like utterly devastated the power of the church in France. You have, you know, the Holy Roman Emperor. You know, we'll always have a Holy, Ro- Holy Roman Emperor. Well, not in ni- not in 1808. You don't. There's now the Confederation of the Rhine. The Holy Roman Empire has been officially dissolved. Well, you know, we have the the you know the monarchy in Austria. You know, this is you know leading German speaking state. Uh, they <laughs> they've had to come to terms with an upstart Corsican. Who uh, who whipped their ass up and down Italy? It's a time. It's a time when the old order is visibly evaporating before your eyes, and yeah. no. So it's no wonder that you might have a work that finds resonance with those kinds of themes of just ignoring institutions. I mean, that's the thing. Like how 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 much power does the Catholic Church have in the in the text of Faust, part one. Yeah. Next to nothing. It's not even, Faust doesn't even have to do any kind of dealing through the Catholic Church to reach these demonic powers. He doesn't have to, they can't stop him. No one, no one is inquisiting him. There's just nothing. He's complete, he has complete freedom of action over what is ostensibly a sort of Catholic territory, which must be given the sort of character beats that were given. Yeah. And, and, it, and it has nothing. Where, where are the where are the city fathers to step in? Where are the burghers? Where where are the uh, you know? It's just nothing. It's just the man Faust, his pact with these forces beyond any human institutions, and the power that he inflicts upon this poor woman. Well, see, that's the <laughs> yeah. weird thing. That's the weird thing is that. <clears throat> all right, part of the sermon drong. It, it was sort of like a running <clears throat> theme in the sermon drong was you know how hypocritical society is. Man. Yeah, society. We live in um, a society, man. Joker meme. Yeah, yeah you know. So <laughs> the, the, that's kind of like the the animus for a lot of the sermon drong. It, it's something that comes up again and again and again in like a lot of the plays and things. Um, that society is hypocritical, and that the rules don't apply fully across the board and you can get away with things and you get out of things. Um, it, it's clear that there are these kinds of social pressures on Gretchen. It's clear that there are social pressures on women that are not there for men because mm-hmm. they keep letting the dudes off the hook. Like when, when Gretchen has these conversations with the, the, the other girls, they're talking about, you know, well, the dude's gone and it's all the girl's fault, you know? And yeah. th- that's, Okay, the play wants us to to view that as a hypocrisy. I mean, I, I really think that's clear. But in this particular case, we're also supposed to feel bad for this dude? I don't... Mm-hmm. Okay, at least Don Juan gets dragged to hell by the, the <laughs> ghost of the commendatory. Yeah. 
And which, yeah. which is kind of like, all right, it, it, it's kind of like the the Friday the Thirteenth thing. You know, Friday the Thirteenth uh, slasher films are often morality plays where we sort of get to be titillated by all the young teens doing all those things we wish we could do and can't, and then get to watch them brutally murdered and feel justified in that. Yeah. Um, we get to watch all the bad behavior and then get to watch Faust get off scot-free. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really troubling. It's it weird. really bugs me. <laughs> um, so yeah. I, we, we, ha- we have enough of the pre-modern uh, desire for justice that, uh, you know, I, it's troubling. I, yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, oh, well, I, all right. To ruin it a little bit, uh, when when Goethe goes to pick up Faust again, like years later, he just has Faust wake up in a field and say, wow, that was a bunch of shit. On to new pastures. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, well, like, I guess well, I've been uh, <laughs> blessed with having no memory. And so, well, and, and- let me go do something else. Right, and and thus ends another episode of Faust and Mephistopheles. We'll see you next week. Yeah, when, I mean, it you know, really, yeah. it really is. So, yeah, um, I I don't know. This one just it's fascinating for a lot of the things that happen in it, and it's fascinating right. is what looks like a kind of precursor for so much romantic attitude. Yeah, but there's just something about this one that leaves me cold. I think yeah we're we're, we're landing on um, I think we you know we can give it our official cannonball uh, uh, review where it's one of those that we understand why it's interesting but also eh, it's no Montaigne <laughs> <laughs> there you go and it's no, it's no Moliere I mean Moliere's yeah, yeah, politics yeah. are extraordinarily problematic but and it's certainly time, no Don funny. Quixote I mean you know. Um, I, I don't know. It's it's just <laughs> such a weird one. It's it's sticking with. But me you know what? Way. But it's but it's good to wrestle with, and it's, it's it makes for good conversation. This has been uh, this has been really. This is honestly like I went into this recording. I went into this episode not fully knowing what I would have to say about this work, <laughs> and it's really in the conversation that it really drew it out of me. So uh, so thank well, you for that, Claude. I've. I've <laughs> I've I've gotten it's it's through our conversation. Hey, you know what you guys here at home, like listeners out there in Radio Land, something that's very neat that you might not understand about the show, and forgive me for like going a little fourth wall here, is that so much of the enjoyment of what we or so much of what we get out of these texts, or at least for me, I can't speak for Claude, so much of what we get out of these texts is in having the conversation with each other about them. I actually honestly and I and I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you, Claude. It shifts so much and it clarifies so much about what had been sort of inchoate feelings about whatever I've been reading when I get to talk to you about it and we get to record it and we get to throw it out there into the wild hinterlands of the Internet for anyone else to listen to. Well, um, if this it, it's, if, it's always fantastic. If if this shit is useful at all, and I don't mean what we're talking about. I mean, I, I don't mean our discussion. I mean literature in general, then this mm-hmm. seems to be it. This kind of um, articulation of an idea about the world 
through conversation, through yeah. connection. Uh, and maybe that's my own old romanticism coming in here, but connection <laughs> and dialogue, like conversation does seem to be the root of so much of the stuff that we're looking at. Uh, or, or, or how it matters or why it matters. And so maybe yeah. we're doing our own small part. Uh, I would think so. God knows. But I would also like to, I would also like to hear any other opinions on Thouse Part One. Yeah. Um, what, what does anybody think is canonical about this or, or, or what is it that, that hits? And I, I would love to hear, uh, some of our German speaking fans. Yeah. Uh, okay. And, uh, Not fans, uh, listeners, German speaking right, listeners. listeners. Yeah. Um, and tell I, us yeah, a little I know bit we, about we do, where we do have a stands. Few. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, that what, would be that would be really interesting. Like, do you like what are the excerpts that you read in school? Like, yeah, what is I, you know how what is the kind of standing that it has? Yeah, like what what is this like? How is it taught? Does it still have that kind of cultural resonance? Is there something in this that feels inescapable to you that can't quite come across in the translation? I, I would really love to hear more about that. Um, yeah. So, so you can gonna... you can reach us with uh, with that uh, commentary at uh, at Cannonball Pod on Twitter. Yeah, um, please. And we also have a Gmail address, and I forget the precise details of the Gmail address. Claude, what um, is the Gmail address? I believe it's ClaudeMoInc at gmail dot com. C l a u d e m o i n c at gmail dot com. And before we sign off, uh, I just want to say that our plan. For Faust Part 2 is gonna kinda sorta go like this. Um, Faust Part 2 is bonkers. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> all over the place and it's, it's all kinds of crazy. So the only way that I can think to, to approach it in any coherent way is to approach it act by act. Sure. So what we're going to do for next time is um, we're going to read the sort of introductory poem that takes up the the first part of the first act, uh, A Pleasant Landscape. Sometimes, the, from, from my understanding, sometimes that is sort of taken and isolated on its own. Sometimes it's incorporated into the first act. The way we'll be doing it is incorporating into the first act and then taking on the first act next time. All right. The fact that we're breaking this down act by act should signal just how bananas this whole thing is. But we'll start with the first act of Faust Part 2 and then move on from there. And I may bring in some other guests to help us sort of unpack this if I've got the time, but we'll, we'll see what we can do. So Yeah. That's the plan. Uh, Sounds good to me. I'm I'm ready to dig into the really. I have my uh, my special reprint edition of Manly P. Hall's The Secret Teachings of All Ages. I'm going to be reading through that to prepare for all the occultism. Uh, I'm ready, man. I'm prepared. Oh, you think you are? <laughs> hey, well, hey, it sounds Daniel, like it's going to be a lot of fun next time. Yeah. Have you ever uh, grabbed a, a key that was growing and growing and growing as you held it closer to your groin as you approached the three mothers who were holding uh, an unlit candelabra stand that suddenly flared to life as you touched it with a key, which then caused this gigantic blue explosion, which made you 
pass out in a kind of orgasmic torpor for three scenes? No, uh, once in, okay, once in co- once in college, once in college. <laughs> you are not, prepared. but not since. <laughs> no, you that sounds not. amazing. I'm I'm really looking forward. to You are that. not prepared for this. <laughs> this is, right. I'm, I'm really looking forward to what's uh, the the cannonball being what finally breaks my brain after all, all right. these years. We'll uh, we'll get there. So uh, take it easy and have a good night. All right, good night, man.